Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Neil Katyal. Neil is a partner at Hogan Lovells, a professor of national security at Georgetown University, and he's also the former acting solicitor general. Neil has argued almost 40 cases before the Supreme Court, which is a lot. Neil, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you so much, Oren. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm excited. Okay. Now, we're coming off which might be one of the most historical terms of the Supreme Court ever. First of all, how historical is it before I get into some of these other questions? Very historical. So I've actually argued 45 cases there, Oren. And okay, I'm sorry. I've undercut your resume. I apologize. No worries. And 46 and 47 are coming right up. Oh, my gosh. And I do think that what happened over this last year is different, not just from any other year I've been practicing at the court, but any other year in our lifetimes. And you'd really have to go back to the years 1935 or 1857 to find something similar. Because what happened is that the Supreme Court, and I don't even mean this in a kind of results like political or anything like that, but just in terms of if you ask how much work did the Supreme Court do to interject itself into the national governance debate, there's really only those other two years which could be used as a precedent. I mean, the Supreme Court basically works best. The whole idea of the Supreme Court is really that it operates with limited jurisdiction, besides very little in any given year, indeed very little in any given decade. Alexander Bickel wrote the most important book in all of constitutional law in the 20th century called The Least Dangerous Branch. And the thesis was, because the court doesn't have armies or things like that, it only has legitimacy to enforce its rule. And the way it conserves its legitimacy is by not doing too much at any one time, what he called the passive virtues. So the Supreme Court doesn't have to actually hear any cases, basically, in any year. They do get about 10,000 requests. They hear about 60, 60. So they have a lot of discretion over what cases to hear, and then they have a lot of discretion over how to decide them, broadly or narrowly. And further, they have discretion about how much do they want to reject legal precedent, the wisdom of prior judges. All three of these things have been kind of essential to a limited Supreme Court. And what you saw this term, whether it's abortion or guns or religion or climate, is the Supreme Court blowing past these traditional limits. And so as a result, it is really the most kind of activist court we've seen in our lifetimes. You know, it's like spinal tap. It goes to 11 at every time. It's the YOLO court. And do you think that is it's less limited and more activists in 2022, but then it goes back and jumps back in 2023? Or do you think it continues to be more activists going forward? I think for at least the immediate future, it's likely to be more activists. They've already taken cases that are really big hot button ones, the North Carolina voting one, which is my case. So I should you know disclose that the affirmative action one. There's some major religious freedom versus LGBT rights a case on that. So there's a lot going on. And it, I think it does reflect that at least five justices feel like they have a very solid majority and they can do essentially what they want. Some of this is also just the, the court ideology has changed pretty quickly and pretty dramatically. Is there 
are there precedents of that happening in the past where we've seen just kind of shifts quickly? Not, I think, like this, Warren. I mean, for our entire lifetimes, the court has been dominated by Republican nominees to the Supreme Court. I mean, at Roe versus Wade, it was seven to two Republican, and has basically stayed around that. We're six to three for you know all the decades that we've been alive. What I think is different is the type of conservative that is on the court, and that is partially a result of President Trump and Mitch McConnell working together for a very concerted strategy. So when Justice Scalia passed away, unfortunately, in 2016 and was replaced by Neil Gorsuch, that didn't really change the composition of the court. If anything, there's an argument it moved the court to the left a little bit. But when Justice Kennedy was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, that moved the court quite a bit to the right. Justice Kennedy was definitely a kind of swing vote. He clearly hadn't made up his mind before argument. You could always look at him and tell he was agonizing about which way to rule. And then the real change, uh, even more so than that one, which was quite ground shaking as it was, was Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, that has really solidified a certain kind of thinking on the U.S. Supreme Court. Interesting. I'd love to dive in a little bit more on like the Chief Justice. You know, Chief Justice Roberts, he wrote a separate concurring opinion with Dobbs. I would assume one of the more significant cases of his tenure, but he only has so much influence on the court. How does his influence on the court rate with historical chief justices? So the chief justice, the position is basically called first among equals. Like you literally just have the same vote as everyone else. You are the most senior. So if you're in the majority, you can assign the opinion. And I'm a huge fan of this chief justice. I, I run his old Supreme Court practice, and he is truly an institutionalist at the time when there are very few people who care about institutions anymore. Um, before he became chief justice, he was, I think, the greatest Supreme Court practitioner of his generation and the like. He's very cautious. He's Burkean. He's kind of like, you know, in many ways, uh, the opposite of what the new Supreme Court has become. So it's not really, in my mind right now, the Roberts Court, it's the Alito Court. It's five justices far to the right of him who are pushing for taking as many big cases as they can and deciding them in as big ways as they can. And the chief only has so much influence over that process. He only has one vote. He does have a lot of moral authority, but that isn't enough, obviously, at this point. And so I really do feel for the chief because I'm sure he feels this. He doesn't, I'm sure, can't imagine the idea of the court in so many of the political crosshairs that it's in right now. I saw like a statistic in SCOTUS blog, which said that there's been a decline in the number of unanimous decisions and that the most common decisions were 6-3. How does that rate historically, and what does that mean both for the country and for the court? Yeah, it's a, it's a real interesting thing. So John Roberts, when he was being confirmed to be chief justice, he said it was really important for him to have unanimity, to have the court speak with one voice wherever it could. And up until you know Justice Barrett got on the court, I would say he did a really good job of that. Four years ago, he had two-thirds of the cases at the Supreme Court were decided unanimously. And was that high, very high historically? Oh, it's, yeah, you'd have to go back, I think, over 100 years to actually find a precedent like that. So, And there were some big cases like the cell phone privacy case, the Gene 
case about BRCA1 and 2 and, you know, can you patent the human genome? They did a lot of big stuff that year. And that's happened in other terms as well. I assume to get something unanimous, you need to get a bunch of different people on board. So you have to kind of moderate the opinion a bit, I presume, right? hundred percent. So not always, but a lot of times. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education, of course, is unanimous and not moderated. It was a strong opinion. The gene patents case, another one, the cell phone privacy case. These are actually pretty big holdings. But Oren, I think your instinct is right that in general, when you have a unanimous opinion, it's deciding less than a five to four opinion. Because if you only need to keep five people on board and on a ideologically diverse court, that's going to look like a very different opinion. And so what we're seeing now here is five, four, or six, three opinions that are quite a bit broader and more radical than the kind of historic way in which the Supreme Court has operated. And what is the public opinion around the Supreme Court is more negative than it has been in the past? Of course, public opinion about every institution is more negative than it has been in the past, where Americans are losing confidence in every major institution. But how much does the Supreme Court care about public opinion? You can't just completely not care. And how much are they ultimately swayed by it? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak to these nine because I have frankly no idea about these nine. But, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship on this question. And it's generally understood over American history that the Supreme Court just can't stay out of step with public opinion for very long, that somehow something happens. Obviously, in 1857, we had the most catastrophic thing imaginable, a civil war prompted in large part by the Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott. In 1935, we had the court striking down all sorts of New Deal progressive legislation leading in 1937 to FDR to threaten to pack the court and force the court to blink, essentially. You know, those historical precedents, I do think, are a template. Obviously, there's a lot of harm in the interim, but I don't think it is possible for the court to operate in the way it is operating right now, because it's not just reaching conservative results, it's reaching extremely conservative results, whether it's on guns or abortion or climate or religious freedom versus LGBT issues. In all these different spheres, you know, the court is siding very hard to one side, leaving it very hard for folks on the other side to feel like they're equal participants in our American democracy. So I do think that one way or the other, we will start to see some sort of changes. And you mentioned this idea of packing in court. It's something that in certain circles, people talk about a lot, maybe more on the left, obviously, than the right today. What's your take on it, both historically and a general tactic? Well, I just think it's a a silly debate to have because you need to have at least 50 votes in the Senate for this and full number in the House, a majority in the House, if not 60 in the Senate because of the filibuster. And I'm not even sure you have 30, let alone 50. And I think the reason for that, Orrin, is Yes, the Supreme Court is not fixed in our constitution at any given size. We started with five, we had six for a time, we had 10, and for since 1867, we've had nine justices, but it could be changed by statute. But let's say that happens. Let's say the Democrats, and they're right to be absolutely angry with the Republican Party for the way in which they monkeyed and jiggered the Supreme Court with its Justice Scalia seat, not giving Merrick Garland a hearing, and so on. So let's say they say, we're going to go to 13. We're going to vote for 
30-year-old justices on the okay? So they do that. And then in 2028, the Republicans win and they say, well, look at what you did to monkey the court Democrats. We're going to go to 19, put our four on. And then in 2028, it just keeps going forever. Right. It'll go on and we'll have, it'll be like, you know, the Republicans will put a hundred people on and it'll be the Supreme Court of India with a hundred justices. And that kind of tit for tat can't be a good viable long-term strategy. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. There's also this idea of the shadow docket, which are like these emergency actions taken by the court that don't go to the full briefing and hearing. And in the last 15 years or so, the number and scope of these rulings has gone up a bit. What's going on there for us lay people? Yeah. So the shadow docket refers to kind of emergency motions that are being filed at the Supreme Court in contravention to what I think all of us read about in the papers, which is the ordinary way court Supreme Court case proceeds, which is you file a request to hear the case. As I say, the Supreme Court gets 10,000 of those requests a year. They only decide to hear about 60. Then there's briefing and you write over a period of months, these long legal papers to the court. Then there's an oral argument at the court, one hour, 30 minutes per side, where they ask really hard questions of both sides. Then there's a period of months while they write the opinion in secret and then it's ultimately released. That's the ordinary process. Yep. And the shadow docket refers to, well, some lower court somewhere did something that has created an emergency problem. Allow us to brief this in five, six days. Don't hear oral argument generally, and just decide this thing. And to give your listeners one example, I was very involved in the Muslim ban that President Trump issued. So We went and argued it in the trial court, federal district court. We won. So we stopped the Muslim ban from going into effect. We then argued it in the court of appeals. And when Trump appealed and we won that, Trump would run to the Supreme Court and say, hey, I need to put the Muslim ban in place. So disregard this lower court opinion rule for us. So those kinds of things happen. Presumably it's an emergency. Exactly. I'm worried about terrorism or something. and Or Muslims, yeah. So we need to reinstate this thing right away. So that kind of emergency docket is what is known as shadow docket. And it's always been a small feature of the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think when I was in the government, I maybe filed one or two such requests. And maybe there were a total of three or four in Obama's entire presidency was very low. And I think there were something like, and I don't know the numbers exactly, but 50 or 60 in the Trump administration. Oh, got it. And obviously, if it's filed by the Solicitor General, it's going to have a lot of weight from the Supreme Court, wherever it's filed by Joe Schmo, it may have a lot less weight or something. That's exactly right. It's hard for an emergency docket really to manifest in some other context besides the government, because normally things aren't true emergencies in that sense. It's usually dollars and cents. But I think during COVID, there were at least several emergency petitions filed by religious organizations who said, you know, I shouldn't be forced to be vaccinated or masked or this or that. Interesting. Now, going back to this idea of this hour hearing where it's 30 minutes per side, I know that we write a lot of stuff and we spend a thousand thousand of hours writing these things and putting these briefs together. But I don't know, 30 minutes aside does not seem a lot to decide these very, very, very weighty things. Should we have like a five hour instead of an hour or what's so great about the hour? Well, it's interesting, Oren, because I thought this would be one of the most fascinating things for you in particular, because over our 15 years of knowing 
one another. You strike me as like the consummate student of how to structure some conversations to <laughs> the most in the smallest amount of time. You're really good at it. I've learned from you. And this is actually the Oren Hoffman approach to kind of legal cases, what happens at the Supreme Court. They've really, I think, thought about this a lot, experimented with different things and have resulted in this. Like back at the founding, like Daniel Webster would argue cases for days and days. Like my colleague versus Maryland, I think he argued for nine days. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, and so then it moved to, you know, three days. Now we're at a half hour per side, which is exactly like my Hindu wedding, which was supposed to be three days long. I married someone Jewish. We settled on a half hour. <laughs> so we went three days to a half hour and you extract the essence out of the ceremony. And that's the same thing with an oral argument. The truth is, even in many of the most hot button cases I've argued, you know, the Constitutionality, the Voting Rights Act or Guantanamo or whatever, if the questions are pointed enough and they've everyone's done their homework, you actually can get what you need in the half hour. Because there's thousands of hours at work that go into the half hour, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the other piece of it is, you know, the Supreme Court's different than Congress. Nobody's looking for airtime. Everyone's got life tenure. They're not yeah. trying to impress anyone. Maybe they're a little bit trying to get some laughs or something. But for the most part, it's as solemn an affair as you could imagine. Yeah. And they don't even all have to ask a question. Exactly. Now, during COVID, it actually changed. They had to because it went around, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Before it was like a scrum and anyone could ask anything. And then during COVID, for, they went to a seniority gets asked questions, which forced justices like Justice Thomas, who hadn't asked a question in many, many years to start asking questions, which was really refreshing. And now we're back to being in person in the Supreme Court, but no guests or anyone. And it's a modified version of that. It's still the scrum, but at the end of the scrum, any justice in order of seniority can ask a question. Now, one of the things is that I find is just like fascinating in kind of today's world where there's just so much bickering and stuff is that it does seem like the justices on the Supreme Court have deep respect for one another and they actually have deep friendships, like real true friendships with one another, even if they're in very different ideological camps. Why do you think this happens? Because in today's world, this is rare. Why is this happening on the Supreme Court? It's one of the most amazing things, Oren, and again, something that really I've watched you emulate in your own personal life with friendships on both sides. And it's something I've tried to really take from the court. It's different at the court because unlike Congress or even just ordinary workplaces, you look around at your colleagues on day one of your job, they're your colleagues for like decades. They're going to know you better than your spouse knows you in many ways probably spend more time with them than you than many of the justices spend with their spouses. And it's the ultimate kind of, if you're a game theorist, the ultimate repeat player game, not a case after case after case after case. They all know everyone's faults. They know everyone's strengths and weaknesses and the like. So I think that's part of it. But in some ways, but you could say something very similar about the Senate. I mean, some of these guys and gals have been there for 30 plus years. And is it just because the Senate is just a much bigger organization? I think it's different because in the Senate, it's still, you don't have life tenure. You're still playing for your reelection and things like that. At the court, the other thing is, is you're also trying to persuade over 
other people in the Senate, your constituents, the national public, you know, the world stage, whatever. At the U.S. Supreme Court, it's all your own individual judgment. You have all the power you're going to have. The only way you get any more power is by persuading your colleagues. And so that puts an emphasis on those friendships. And I don't mean to say, actually, that this is some sort of studied thing we're in. These are truly genuine friendships. You know, I had the privilege of working for Justice Breyer. He adored Justice Thomas, and it was mutual. You know, and that happened. Every relationship I saw at the court was similar to that one. It's a really rare thing. And, you know, when Justice Breyer announced his retirement, within a few hours, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post just about this thing, because I do feel like our democracy is forcing some people to tear each other apart. The democracy isn't, but in our democracy, it's being splintered by that. And if we could be a little more like the Supreme Court, act with a little more charity toward those with whom we disagree, I think it'd be a lot better. It's not a recipe for both sidesism or anything like that, but it is to just say we're all engaged in a common calling as part of our democracy, making a more perfect union. Let's try and find where we can the moments of commonality. That doesn't mean you don't call people out on their weaknesses and horrible things they've done, but it does mean sometimes look for the bright spot in people. And, and I do truly associate that with you, Warren. So in my opinion, every single person on the court in my lifetime has been an extraordinary person. Somehow we just somehow select for these extraordinary people by default, they must have the respect from the other eight people because they're showing the other eight are like, oh yeah, I could see why this person belongs in my club. They're also an extraordinary person. Did like that psychological thing have anything to do with it? Or Well, we've definitely had people on the court who were not extraordinary, Reynolds and, and people like that. So definitely we've had some people who shouldn't have been there, not just by dint of intellect, but by dint of serious prejudice and things like that. Probably some of it is professional qualifications, but but truly, I do think the structure of the court is probably the most important feature here. Now, when you're preparing for a Supreme Court case, like in the old days, you could target Justice Kennedy or maybe Justice O'Connor. How does the preparation look different in today's court? I actually don't think it looks that different. You know, or in, when I did my first case on Guantanamo, which I did by myself as a law professor. I really did think, okay, I got to target Justice Kennedy. He's the swing vote. And I got to figure out how to get into his head and argue to him and so on. And when I went in the Solicitor General's office, I argued at that point a whopping two Supreme Court cases, whereas people in that office had argued dozens upon dozens. I mentioned that mentality and they're like, what are you talking about? No, that's not the way you do a Supreme Court argument. Oh, because that's exactly the way I would have thought you would have done it. Yeah, no, no. The way you do a Supreme Court argument largely is you're thinking, what's the best answer to the hardest questions? And you're just trying to figure that out. And you let the chips fall where they may. That's not to say that you aren't thinking who's in play. You are. And I mean, if you're getting a lot of questions from someone hostile who isn't going to ever vote for you, you are trying to think about how do I get off those questions and look toward a questioner who might be more in play. So that's definitely there. But I will say my mind shift is much more, if I can make the very best argument I can make, that's the thing that's most likely to persuade that justice in the middle. Interesting. You also argue a lot of appellate cases. How are those different than arguing Supreme Court cases? They're very different. I think the main difference is that in the Supreme Court, they're not 
bound by precedent the way they are in the lower court. So in the lower courts, the question is really, what is the law? What does yeah. this Supreme Court decision say? What does that Supreme Court decision say? And we're bound by it. But the U.S. Supreme Court, it's what should the law be? And that's why it's almost a different profession, Lauren, because it's a law professor-ish profession at the Supreme Court. And it's one in which the justices are really trying to throw hypotheticals at you because they're trying to figure out what's the right legal rule and what are the contours of your legal position? Where does it stop? Where does it start? So they're tweaking various facts in the case and saying, suppose this fact didn't exist, suppose that fact didn't exist, would it be the same? So take abortion, for example, the Dobbs case that was just decided, it involved a Mississippi ban of 15 weeks. Roe versus Wade said you could ban abortion after the 24th or 25th week. So the lawyers all said, the lawyers said, this is inconsistent with Roe. And then the question was, well, okay, this is a 15-week ban. Would Mississippi, your argument, be the same if it's a zero-week ban? And Mississippi said, yes, Roe is not the law of the land, leading five justices to do that. So they're tweaking the facts in a case to try and figure out where the positions of the parties stop and start. And this is a good example of where I think the Supreme Court went far beyond what they needed to to decide this case. They could have said, we're not dealing with first trimester abortion bans because that's not an issue in Mississippi. Which was kind of the Roberts view. Exactly. I would have thought also, which is to arguing from an appellate court to be given like the makeup, when you're arguing from the Supreme Court, if you're going to argue in a few weeks in front of the Supreme Court, like, you know who it's going to be. It's roughly the same people that's always there. It's the same nine people. They do change over time, but at least for the same year, it's probably the exact same people there. Whereas the appellate court is usually, I think, three people, right? And it could be like a jumble of any three from the, let's say, arguing the Ninth Circuit or something. And so you don't even know who you're going to get for a while. And I imagine it's like very, very different depending on how it works out. That's 100% right. In the Court of Appeals, it's three randomly selected judges. And it's not just that you don't know the three, you don't know the interactions and how the dynamics will work. Because they may have never been on decision together ever before. Right, exactly. So any particular group of three is going to be different. The nine at the Supreme Court is stable. You know who they are. You know generally how they interact with one another. And for someone like me, who's spent my entire professional life studying them, every word they use, seeing hundreds of times that they've been at oral argument asking questions, you know, I'm in their heads in a way that I could never be in with 140 different court of appeals judges in the country. Yeah, because the permutations are so large. Exactly. In today's court, sometimes you see these, I would say, strange bedfellows, Thomas and Sotomayor linking up and maybe other people on the other side. Does that make it harder or easier to argue in front of the court today? Well, I love when that happens. I feel it's happening less Lauren, than it used to. I felt like there were more justices who were in play before I walked into the Supreme Court than there are now. I think more justices have made up their mind, particularly on a big, hot social case than in the past. They're listening. They're asking incredibly hard questions. But I feel like there's a little more commitment to a prior position at argument now within in the past. So which makes your job less important then or? Well, maybe less important. It does, I think I would say places more emphasis on the briefing than it does on the oral argument. And it may be the case. And sometimes I do this. I look at a case that I've been given at the Supreme Court and we've won it in the Court of Appeals. Supreme Court's agreed to hear it. And I say, 
with this composition of the court, I can't win this case. So I need to figure out how to lose this case in the narrowest way possible to do the least damage either to my client or to the country, depending on what the client wants. Obviously, we're always guided by the client. Sometimes the client will want to take a hit in order to avoid harm to the nation. So, you know, a good chunk of what I do is try and think through how do I engineer a soft landing? When we had your friend Tom Goldstein on the World of Dust podcast, he had said that despite the headlines, most Supreme Court cases are are not really very super ideological. You still think that holds given the current court climate? I'm not sure when he came on, but it's certainly the case that they're grabbing some big hot button cases. That's not to say there aren't any. You know, on the first day of Justice Jackson's service as a justice on October 3rd, I will argue a case called Delaware versus uh, Wisconsin and a bunch of other states. And it's about escheatment law in checks and uh, money orders and stuff like that. And that is not a hot button case. And in November, I have a death penalty case from Arizona with 26 lives on the line. And then in December, I have the North Carolina voting case. So, you know, there are big hot button cases, of course, but there are also these other cases too. Okay. Interesting. You rose to prominence where you defended an ex-driver of Osama bin Laden who was suing the US president for violating the Geneva Convention in Guantanamo. The fact that you could even bring this case to me shows that America is this kind of very unique and special place. How do you think about it just as a citizen of the country? Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it. What a privilege it was to be able to argue that case on behalf of someone the world hated and to win. I mean, when I brought the case, nobody thought we could win. I had all sorts of death threats. I had to have bodyguards. It was a nightmare. But I remember coming out of the Supreme Court hearing that we had won the case and Justice Stevens wrote this 180 page opinion about why we were right. And the media was all asking me on the courthouse steps, what does the decision say? It was like 180 pages. I didn't have time to read it. But what I said to them, Warren, is almost what you just said to me a moment ago. I said, look, here's what happened on this day. You had a guy, the lowest of the low, hated across the world, Osama bin Laden's driver, And he brought a court case, not just against anyone, but the world's most powerful man, the president of the United States. And he did it not in some rinky-dink traffic court, but in the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court of the United States. And he won. That's what's so special about America. It's why I am an American exceptionalist. In many other countries, this driver would have been shot. And more to the point for me, his lawyer would have been shot. (laughs) (laughs) But... The genius of the Constitution was to understand government's going to make mistakes. Men aren't angels. We need a system of checks and balances. It's such a privilege to function as part of that system of checks and balances as a lawyer. It actually like really makes me proud to be an American when I hear those types of things. A hundred percent. And, you know, I actually went to the, you know, this was against President George W. Bush. And I went to the State Department afterwards and I said, look, we have our disagreements But this is a great thing to be pushing across the world. I mean, yes, you lost the case, but that more important thing is this is the way government should operate. We acknowledge our leaders are going to make mistakes. Got nowhere. (laughs) All right. A couple of personal questions for you. We have been friends for, as you mentioned, a long time. And one of the things I've always marveled at, but I've never had a chance to ask you about is 
how little sleep you need. You seem to just be able to get just a ton of work done on very little sleep. I heard these stories of like Bill Clinton when he was like a teenager and every day he got like one minute less of sleep and he kind of trained himself to go do it. Or is it just like, you just like were born that way? No, if anything, it's reverse. I'm training myself going to try and get more sleep. So I've never really needed more than four hours, but I've read a lot of studies now that suggest how dangerous this is long-term. And you and I have a mutual acquaintance, the guy who was involved with Skype, um, the one who dances, I can't remember his name. I think his name is Jan. Jan Tallinn? Yeah. Yeah. So he started this company with these rings that track your sleep. And so I've been wearing it for about three years and it has gotten my sleep up a bit. Just because you can track it or like now that you're measuring it, you want to win or something or? Yeah, I don't want to win, but I know I'm accountable. I could deny it before. And, you know, as I think about, you know, and I have children and so on, and I want to be there for their grandchildren and the like. So I'm trying to push myself to get more sleep. Okay. All right, cool. Now you're on the news all the time, but you're also been on like a bunch of scripted shows. You've been on house of cards, you're on billions. What's the most surprising thing about working in the entertainment industry? It's such an interesting profession, what they do. I think maybe the thing that I'll share with you is when I did the billions one, I filmed it about a year ago. When you film something like my scene was like seven minutes long, but it takes two days. You have to do it like 40 times and they do it from every possible camera angle. So I do my scene and I do it again and again. And honestly, they were all the same, basically. Maybe I'd flub a word once or twice, but otherwise I was the same. I was in a scene with Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, the two kind of stars of that show and incredible actors, both of them. Every one of those 40 times, Warren, they did the scene differently. And we weren't as actors allowed to change even a word of the script. So we're not changing the text. But by intonation, by gesture, by voice, by how they carried themselves, each one was different. They're tweaking something here or there. And for me as a lawyer, it's a really interesting thing because we're taught a text has a kind of generally fixed meaning. Words have kind of determinate meanings. Right. You raise an eyebrow and all of a sudden it has a very different meaning than before. hundred percent. hundred percent. And the range that they had to be able to do that versus my, you know, pathetic, maybe I'll like not. Well, you're, you're, I mean, look, you're also working with two amazing actors. Yeah. I don't know if the average actor could do that, but that's really cool. Certainly better than me. (laughs) And I know you also got your own legal podcast courtside. I've got this rinky ding podcast, this world of das podcast and juggling that and being a CEO has been, you know, very hard for me. You've got a podcast, you're a prominent litigator, you, you've got your professor, you're a star on TV. What's the productivity hack? Is it just like sleep four hours a night or what's the productivity hack to be able to do all these things? I know I've made it or when you're asking me for productivity hack, it's like, I'm like, wow, because I think you got like every one of those jobs and probably three others too. Because I could start listing yours and it's a longer list than mine. (laughs) The main thing is that I do literally hire the best people in all of my teams, my legal team at my law firm, everywhere I work. It's just like that to me is the secret and they have to be team players. So A plus, but also team players. Obviously, everyone wants to hire the best people. What's the secret? Is it I got to just pay up for it? No. No, no, I don't pay above market or anything like that. I do one thing, which is I look for the best young people and I say, 
if you work with me, you're going to get every chance in the book. You'll get to argue cases. I give associates U.S. Supreme Court cases to argue, things like that. So they get full, massive responsibility very, very early in their career. So basically, you're selling growth. You're like, you're going to grow faster working with me than you would before. And probably the best people are optimizing for growth. So they're more excited to work with you or something. Exactly. And so like the very first associate I hired when I went to my law firm a decade ago was named Elizabeth Perloger. I made her this deal. I said, I will watch you get every opportunity. And she did. And she is now the confirmed Solicitor General of the United States just 10 years later. Okay. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Okay. That's cool. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice is generally bad advice? I think most advice about careers, bad advice, because all they're doing is replicating their own career moves. And they have an end of one type of thing. Yeah. And so exactly. So it may not be replicable and it may not be what the person wants anyway. The best advice is always given from the perspective of the person who's asking for it. But unfortunately, I think at least particularly when it comes to career advice, it's always relayed (laughs) from the perspective of the person who's giving it and not really with enough empathy to get into the other person's head. So I've been really dubious about career advice. Okay. That's a great answer. Okay. Now I follow you, Neil underscore L on at Twitter. Is that the best place for our audience to engage with you? Yeah, that would be great. The Twitter account is active. Nothing else I do is check very much. So that's it. Okay, awesome. This has been amazing. Thank you, Neil, so much for joining us at World of Das. Thank you, my friend. My best to Hallie. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.